Good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to see you all this morning. Today, we're continuing in our series called DNA, The Values That Shape Us, and we're walking through our four core values that our elders have been working on this year. And this is a little different uh, for what we normally do. So if you're new with us, we usually are preaching and walking through a book uh, of the scriptures or a particular text. Uh, for quite a while, we've been walking through the gospel of Luke. And some of you, maybe you just hear like the words core values or the term values and you're just like, oh boy, here we go. This is some hokey, like corporate weird thing. Um, what do we value? Honesty, integrity. Uh, now, I mean like, so we're hoping it's not that. That's not what we're going for here. Rather, here's what we're trying to do. In this series, we wanna look at ourselves honestly. Uh, we wanna look through the lens of God's word and ask, how has God shaped us as a church family? Uh, down to the very like, root level of who we are, down to the, the, the DNA, if you will. Uh, we wanna understand who we are in light of him. And then we wanna press into those values. Like we've not arrived in any way. And so our prayer would be that God would continue to shape us into the image of Christ. And so that's what we're, what we're hoping to do during this series. You'll, you'll notice each week that the words we've chosen are on their face oppositional or contrasting terms. Uh, maybe you've even seen the initials on the slides and you've, maybe you're like, maybe you have like your own like little word game you're playing, trying to figure out uh, what they are. They're actually, you can find them in the building, so they're not that hidden. But, but why contrasting terms? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, we, about a year ago, a Danish artist named Jens Hannig, I had to say his name right, was commissioned uh, by the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Denmark for $84,000 uh, to deliver them a work of art entitled, or to depict the future of work. And much to the museum's dismay, uh, when Hanning supplied the museum with these two pieces of framed art, uh, what they found them to be were two blank canvases. Of course, I think this is hilarious. Um, even more hilarious, though, were uh, the words of some of those who reviewed the art. One reviewer uh, pondered this. He, he said this of the artist. Uh, the artist is issuing a stirring call to arms, reflecting the imbalance of dead labor over living labor. Look, unless there's invisible ink, like blank canvases, that's not art. Uh, sorry for you art people. Like there's some art people that are like, yeah, it's, it's all beauties in the eye of the beholder. Um, that's not beautiful. Why? What, what, what really makes beauty is the contrast, right? The different colors and the different shades uh, we need to see, to see, we need to have contrast to see beauty. And God himself is a God of beautiful contrast. He is far more beautiful than any painting. Let me explain what I mean there. That I want you to think of the many attributes of God. He is a God of great power and yet abounding in mercy. He's a God of perfect judgment and yet extravagant forgiveness. The scriptures say he is a God of wrath and yet that he is full of love. And it's in these seeming contrasts that we gain a deeper clarity of just the magnificence of God. Only as we see the great height of his holiness can we really marvel at the, the great mercy that he gives to sinners. This is the idea of, of contrast. 
Last week, we introduced the most foundational of all of our values, that, that we are alive by the word. And, and we will not embody any of these other values unless that is first true. That Jesus is our life. Jesus, the divine word of God, the king revealed in all of scripture, it's in him that we have life. There, there's true life in, in, in no one else and nothing else. Not hobbies or family, not in making a difference in the world. Even our pursuits of morality and theological knowledge, they, they leave us spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ. The whole Bible leads us to the crucified and risen son of God. And it is only by his death and his resurrection that we're made alive. And, and so all who turn to him, all of us who have come to Jesus, he forgives our sin. He grants us new life with him, real life. So, so that's, that's us, that's who we are. That's us, Redeemer. We're alive by the word, alive by Jesus. And if, so if you missed the message last week, go, go back and, and, and check it out. It was really encouraging. Um, now in week two, I say it's encouraging. Lawson preached that one, so we'll see about week two. Uh, now in week two, our second value is conviction, convictional kindness. Convictional kindness. This is a term that's been used by several folks, most notably coined by author Russell Moore, uh, but also used by uh, Nymark's author, Jonathan Lehman. Uh, and if the term strikes you as unfamiliar, you're going, well, so they're kind to convicts? I'm not really sure. Like, I, I hope that's true. I hope we are, but that's not what we're getting at. Uh, in short, conviction. Think someone who is committed to what is true. A person of conviction. And then kindness. I think that's probably a little more familiar of a word. Convictional kindness. So as we move through the different scriptures today, I want us to consider four aspects of convictional kindness. Number one, the counterfeits. Number two, the real thing. Number three, convictional kindness in us. And lastly, convictional kindness to us. Let's pray together as we begin. Right where you are, would you, would you just pray for your own self? for your family? Would you pray that the Lord would give you ears to hear, hearts to receive the truth of his word, that he would change us by his word? And then would you just, would you pray for me? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by what the Lord is speaking to us uh, in this message. Would you pray that I would, I would be out of the way um, and that the Lord would speak uh, in his, his grace, his truth to us that we would, that we would hear. So pray, pray for me as we begin. Oh, Spirit, would you, would you move today? Would you help us to, to see and to enjoy and to marvel at our Savior? And would you shape us into the image of the Son of God? Would we look more and more like our God and King? 
So Father, would you do that? That's a, that's a work of you. That's, that's your spirit at work in us. Would you, uh, would you move us today by your word, through your spirit? We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we begin with number one, the counterfeits. So before we dig into the scriptures, I just want us first to consider how the culture is, is, has counterfeited these biblical ideas of conviction and kindness, the truth and kindness. And now what I'm gonna say won't be a shock to you. I, I think these are all common things that you'll just, you'll just nod about and go, yeah, 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 okay, I know what you're talking about. Um, so how has our culture sought to counterfeit truth and kindness? Uh, number one, only kindness. I'm gonna state, try to state these things positively too. So stated positively, in a way maybe the culture might recognize, would be unlimited acceptance. So we live in an era, right, that, that the only sin is to claim that there's sin. The only way to be wrong is to say that someone is wrong. I read recently that the cultural religion of the day is Unitarian Universalism. Basically, that there are no wrong answers unless your answer is to say there are wrong answers. This is moral relativism, right? That every path is equal. Truth is whatever is true today for you. There is no universal standard to which we all must adhere. Some have said there, there is no longer truth, only what you feel. So we live in a post-truth culture. But unless, unless you think that that is a new thing, our world simply sounds like the very last line in the book of Judges, which says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But, but today, uh, the banner under which all of that activity happens is the banner uh, of kindness, of love. The mantra of the modern ethics says, love is love is love, meaning that, that, that love is, is whatever you feel it is. To define love for someone means that you are, you're being hateful toward the kind of love that they feel. Of course, we know that this is an untenable way to move forward, an untenable view of the world because the, un the unchangeable nature of God, it's written into the creation. Therefore, humans aren't in a position that we could adjudicate what is true, what is right and wrong. We need a standard. To illustrate this reality, consider the work of a doctor. If you walk into your doctor with a lump on your neck, you go, doctor, there's something wrong with me. This lump was never here before, and now, now it's here. I, I don't know what it is. What should I do? So the doctor feels the lump, looks, looks over it closely, and then rolls his little stool over in front of you, and he looks you in the eye, and he says, this lump is lovely. Be encouraged. Uh, necks come in all shapes and sizes and your neck with its lump is, is as lovely as all the others I've seen. I'm sure you're fine. Oh, I love my doctor. He makes me feel so good. He, he encourages me. He accepts my neck just as it is. Of course, this is ridiculous, right? It's absurd. If a doctor's only treatment was limitless kindness and acceptance, the results would be deadly. Kindness, apart from truth, is actually not kindness at all, is it? We can't unlimitedly condone as, as, as equal, all paths as equal or right, any more so than we can all just agree that Houston summer weather uh, is 70 degrees most days. Like We may wish it to be so, uh, but that doesn't make it so. 
So what happens when truth and conviction are spoken about in this sort of culture? Outrage, of course. How dare they think that? Spend five minutes on Twitter and you can just hear the gears of the outrage machine as they turn. But I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, am I? I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm telling you what water is and you're like, yeah, I swim daily. Like, I, I, I get it. Uh, I, I don't have to explain it. But there's another counterfeit making the rounds that I think sometimes maybe gets more of a pass and I'll, I'll call this one, number two, only truth. And I'm gonna state that one positively, which would be truth at any cost. And this counterfeit says that as, as long as truth is spoken, that that's all that is required. In fact, those who can't handle the truth, they are the enemy, not deserving of kindness and gentleness. Those who disagree aren't to be seen as, as sufferers, as image bearers of God. No, they're to be seen as evil. And once people can be demonized, then all sorts of sinful behavior can be justified. Not only is kindness no longer required, kindness is weakness. Harsh language is what is required. I can even exaggerate their position, anything to discredit them. Why? Because I'm standing for truth. Of course, we see this so obviously in the political discourse of the day. It seems like each day that what, what really gains traction is, is political hatred and extremism. But it's not just in politics. We see, it, uh, we see it in many facets of life. We see it in the church. Theological camps throwing grenades toward one another, not over first order theological disagreement over the gospel, but over second, third, fourth level disagreements of positions. In fact, we, we live in such a climate that to speak charitably, to show kindness and gentleness to those who are your, your ideological opponents, that's considered weakness. To illustrate this reality, Imagine a friend of yours, you invite them over for dinner and during the meal, they don't respond to any of your stories. They stare blankly. They express no gratitude. And at the end of the meal, they stand up and declare, your house is very messy. And this meal could have been much better. And your story's boring. But I have to go now. So I will see you soon, my friend. It doesn't make any sense. It's absurd, isn't it? No kindness, no gentleness, only truth. It's absurd, but that counterfeit played out can be so dangerous. Truth without kindness is not actually walking in the truth at all. Number two, we see the real thing. So these are counterfeits and we could go on. I mean, there are uh, many ways in which the world is twisting truth and kindness uh, but what is the real thing? First, truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me. So in a pluralistic society, one of the most offensive aspects of Christianity is its claim of truth. There is an answer for all of the problems that ail the world, all of the human condition, and his name is Jesus. So truth is then forever linked to the permanence of Jesus, the divine son of God. However fixed Jesus is, 
However unchanging his nature and his perfection, this is how fixed the truth will be. We read in Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same when? Yesterday, today, forever. Culture changes, but Jesus stands outside of culture. So if Jesus is unchanging, this means truth is unchanging. Truth is not tied. Uh, it's not tied to the, the movability or the changing mores of culture or norms, but it's tied to Christ himself. Therefore, it's not arrogant to say that something is true. Why? Because truth comes not from us, but from Jesus. Likewise, it's also not humble to deny that truth exists. Paul warned against teachers like that. Those who are, he said in 2 Timothy 3, those who, who uh, are learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So it's, it's not a virtue to never arrive at a place of truth. And then next, truth changes us. Truth never changes, but truth does change us. Jesus prayed this for his disciples and for us in John 17. He said, sanctify them. This is how he prayed to the Father. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify them for myself so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So to know Jesus is to know the truth. And Jesus is praying, God, would you change them? Father, would you sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy? This is what the truth at work in a person does. By knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and I'm not just talking about mental assent, but by knowing your God and Savior, we are sanctified. As we look to him, as we know him more, we are shaped and changed into people of truth. In fact, a fruit of the Spirit, a fruit of being with Jesus is faithfulness. Faithfulness isn't simply being reliable, like you keep appointments well. No, this is someone who believes that truth, uh, that Jesus is the truth and they're being changed by that truth and they're becoming immovable, unshakable, dependable. This is the blessing of the truth of God. It anchors us. One who holds fast to what is true, who believes the truth, who abides in the truth of Jesus, that person is secure. And then last, truth is not just for us. Truth expresses itself toward others. We're called to be truthful, to speak the reality of God to, to the world. So Ephesians 4, this is what Paul tells uh, the church at Ephesus. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. So as we speak the truth to each other, we mature. He goes on in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This means we're not called to relational relativism. We don't just hear what our friends are doing and know that it's wrong and go, yeah. No, we humbly correct. We humbly speak truth. Why? Because of love. Because we love them. Because we're part of them. We're family with them. 1 Corinthians 13 says that to love someone doesn't mean that we rejoice in unrighteousness. No, we rejoice in the truth. So what about kindness? Here's a brief definition of kindness. Kindness is desire and action for someone's good. 
It is compassion and love moving towards someone to benefit them. I love the saying that kindness is love in work clothes. This is why translators have often used interchangeably with kindness words like gentleness, mercy, love. Gentleness, I think, kind of adds more color and flavor to the idea of kindness. That kindness takes the posture of lowliness, of service. We're really describing humility, aren't we? And isn't that a picture of our Savior? We marvel at the kindness of Jesus. That Jesus, the unchanging truth of God, when, when he looked out at the crowds, what welled up inside of him? Matthew 9 says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then only two chapters later, he makes this off offer. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus saying, I am lowly, not I am lofty. I am gentle, he says. This is part of who your savior is. I love this quote from Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that he writes about Jesus. He says, the dominant note left ringing in our ears after reading the gospels, the most vivid and arresting element of the portrait is the way the Holy Son of God moves toward, touches, heals, embraces, and forgives those who least deserve it, yet truly desire it. How does the divine king of the universe, how does he come to sinners? He moves toward them. He comes lowly, humble. He goes low. And isn't that how he came to you? Romans 2, do you despise the riches of his kindness, his restraint and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Our Savior went low. He came to us in kindness, in gentleness. He didn't retreat from us. No, he moved toward us. And by his kindness, he led us to repentance. And so now he calls us to be people of kindness. Like Jesus, he, he sends us out to serve like he did. He calls us to go low like he did. We are told in Philippians 2, we're to have the same mindset, same attitude that's in Christ Jesus moving toward sinners in mercy, not away from them, moving toward our enemies with humility and love, not swooping down in anger and condescension. And just like faithfulness, this is also the fruit of God's Holy Spirit at work in you. More of the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, gentleness. These are like beautiful apples on a tree. They are the natural growth that comes from the life that is connected to Jesus. Paul says to the church at Colossae in chapter three of Colossians, he says, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. He's given the same instruction. And then at the end, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. And Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Make no mistake, kindness and gentleness are not 
a setting aside of the truth. Rather, it is because we understand the truth of the gospel that we are compelled to go low. Listen to Paul's instruction to Timothy that we read at the beginning. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with these who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Uh, So it, it sounds like what Paul is saying is that part of the passion of being young, part of the passion of youth is engaging in foolish and ignorant disputes. It's liking the fight, liking to quarrel. In fact, a few verses earlier, he said, don't get entangled in the civilian affairs, right? What are civilian affairs? I think one of the civilian affairs is seeking quarrels. He said, that's not your mission. So rather than being quarrelsome, Paul says, if you're living by the Holy Spirit, you're going to bring with you a harvest of kindness and gentleness that faithfully exalts the truth of God. This is convictional kindness. He, he, he goes on in that, in that text in verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. What a beautiful contrast. Convictional kindness holds fast to the truth, moving toward brothers, sisters, opponents, even enemies with kindness and gentleness. Why? All with the hope that verse 25, that maybe God will, maybe God in his kindness will will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. There it is, leading them to the truth. We want others to believe the truth, don't we? And so just as he did for me in kindness, we embody the kindness of God to those that we desire to know the truth. And number three, convictional kindness in us. So what does convictional kindness look like? What does it look like played out in the life of our church? Laid out, played out in your life. This can't just be an idea because it's so tied to what's true. And so it's gotta, it has to actually come out in our life. We have to embody it. So what does it look like to embody conviction and kindness? Well, first, It plays out in our relationships with each other. Brothers and sisters, do you operate in convictional kindness with each other? Do you do it when sin is present? Proverbs 27 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The enemy gives many kisses, is what the proverb says, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. So when sin is present, we're to speak up. We are to address it, but how? We're to address it like someone who actually knows the gospel, which means, which means I'm not outraged when my brother sins. Why? Because that's why Jesus died. I speak truth, yes, I don't, but I don't withhold kindness from him. Why? Because in kindness, Jesus led me to repentance. And guess what? Tomorrow, I'm gonna be the one that needs the kindness of God. I'm gonna need his grace. I'm gonna need his forgiveness. So I need to give the same kindness to him now because I believe the gospel. So I move to my brother in kindness. I come low, I come in humility. That's what Galatians 6 says. 
says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person. How? With a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. It's, it's Jesus when he says in Luke 6, stop ignoring the beam sticking out of your eye. When you go to your brother, you should go to your brother lowly like someone who just took a beam out of their eye while you go try to help them talk about their speck. You're still bleeding from the beam. Like don't come in high, come in low. Where there is sin, we must move toward one another with conviction and with kindness. How about non-gospel areas, areas of of disagreement, areas of conscience, areas of theological debate, or, or even areas of liberty and preference. Do you have a personal conviction in certain areas? Maybe it's about alcohol or about homeschooling, about not homeschooling, about mask wearing, about not mask wearing, about who to vote for, about who not to vote for. Oh boy, here we go. Um, let, me, let me just stop and say this. Guess what? There are people in this room who seeking to honor Jesus did not vote exactly like you did. Ah, it's okay. It's okay. What about parenting styles? What about how you discipline? Whether your kid has a phone, whether your kid's allowed to date, whether it's okay to own a boat, whether it's okay to root against the Aggies. Like there's all sorts of things. Sorry, man, I, guess, I, was, uh, I thought I'd have more on my side. Um, I should, I know better. I know that it was on my side. Hey, they won last night. Good job, guys. Um, <laughs> yes, we seek Jesus about decisions of conscience. We want his truth to inform and guide us in the way that we lead our families, the way that we interact in the world, the way that we vote, these are not unimportant choices. But because of the gospel, we can actually disagree on such issues. There can be diversity of practice without the the judgmentalism and outrage that the world throws around. These, These are not issues of first importance according to the scriptures. So we can even gasp, learn from each other. We can disagree in love without accusing each other of being on a slippery slope. You know the slippery slope, right? Uh, This is a word you may, or phrase you've heard thrown around. I think many Christians have a view of theological precision that looks something like this. That there's a triangle with orthodoxy at the top. And of course, in this scenario, our view, our theology sits at the top. At least that's the goal, to to pinpoint and identify the godly view of each position, theological or otherwise. And therefore, any position that that exists, one click to the right or one click to the left is on its way to slide into the abyss, right? It's headed for heresy. But... If you even just do a cursory overview of of church history, it will tell us that there are a number of of key doctrinal beliefs. There's only a small number that are actually like this. However, what is true is that Orthodox Christian, Christian belief actually operates more like a plateau and that there are a number of theological traditions and understandings of Christian practice that fall within what it, would, what it means to be orthodox, simply meaning right or correct belief or thinking. And yes, there is an edge. 
If you compromise or reject first order doctrines of the gospel, then yes, if you, if you reject the triune nature of God, the reliability of the scriptures, if you deny the deity of Jesus and God's grace alone for salvation, if you reject clear teaching of scripture, calling good what God calls evil, these are, are, are first order issues that, that they keep us firmly attached to Jesus. But Christians throughout history, even many of our heroes, our theological heroes, have had different understandings of baptism, of communion, of what a worship gathering looks like, of election and predestination, of church governance, of political and economic engagement. And guess what? It's okay for you to hold convictions in these areas. But are you moving with kindness toward those who disagree with you on third and fourth level issues? Are you staying low, even down, even to the point of even laying down preferences for the sake of the gospel? This is convictional kindness played out in the church. How about in our relationships with unbelieving friends or with those who oppose us? How do we approach those who don't know Jesus? I just want to start with something crazy. Maybe, maybe we could just be kind. Like maybe we could just be kind to people. I mean, I know that's crazy. But maybe before we engage our lost neighbors about the hot button cultural topics of the day, maybe we could just pray for an opportunity to make dinner for them. Maybe we could remember their kids' names or at least remember theirs. Maybe when your coworker shares with you the pain that they're experiencing in parenting, maybe you just pray for them. And then later, maybe you check back in with them to see how they're doing. And, and might we even share our own struggles? Maybe with that coworker you share, here's where I have struggled as a parent. And here's how the Lord has been my hope. What if we actually avoided diving headlong into the most divisive, divisive topics of the day? Because guess what? The people that you know that don't know Jesus and even the ones that do know Jesus, they are so much more than the amalgamation of their political opinions. Isn't it amazing that sinners just walked up to Jesus? He was the perfect son of God, yet he was so approachable. There was something about him that made outcasts feel safe. Oh, that we would be that approachable, that we wouldn't be too busy to talk to our neighbor in the driveway. I'm so convicted about this. Jesus even asked the Samaritan woman, what did he ask her to help to give him some water, didn't he? Maybe, maybe you need to ask your lost friend for some help. I was out working in my, my yard last, last weekend. I don't, I'm not saying that to say that that's something that's happening all the time. Um, but my, my neighbor, uh, my, my neighbors, more than one of them, they have better yards than me. Like I, I'm working, I'm trying. Uh, but so, you know, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to fix some of the places that died uh, and, and 
long story. Uh, but I'm trying to fix some, some spots in my yard. And so I take a picture and I text it to Skip Richter. Some of you know Skip. He uh, was part of our church and moved away. And he's, he's, he's an expert. And, uh, but maybe, I've just been, this has been th- thinking about this the last, all, all, all week. Maybe I should have just asked my neighbor. Hey, can you help me? Can you give me some tips? Can you help me with my yard a little bit? What about, what about when non-Christian friends are our ideological opponents? They don't, they don't care what you believe about Jesus, but they hate what you believe about abortion. They hate your view of gender and the, the Christian sexual ethic. Maybe they hate that, that you won't join them in mocking our current president. Or maybe they hate you because you won't join them in mocking the last one. Can I plead with us about this? Because of Jesus, may we please not get our cues for how to view and talk to people from the outrage machine of politics. If we absorb that political climate into the way that we approach people outside of the church, then lost people are going to see little difference between the church of Jesus and the political pundits. It's already happening. May it not be so with us. We have a future hope, a future kingdom, and that anchors us. That gives us peace. That's gonna be another sermon. I'm not gonna get into that one. Uh, but, so, but, so how do we engage unbelieving friends? When they oppose us, how do we engage them with convictional kindness? I'll say this first, we listen. We just listen. We listen not like a tiger that's ready to pounce. The first second that we hear something we disagree with. No, like really listening. Not cutting them off. And then, and then when, they're, when they're done, we, we, we seek to actually articulate their position in a way that they would understand it way they would recognize. All the while, not looking to win, but looking to see the pain that is in them. What is their need? How does the gospel of Jesus answer the problems of their suffering? This is how we move toward people in kindness. It's okay then to articulate your position. It's okay to talk about such things. But as, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter, he says to be ready to give, uh, at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this, what does he say? How? With gentleness and reverence. So what is our aim in all of those interactions? Peter's saying it's not to defend your position. It's to explain your hope. To explain why you have a hope. And, and, and if I can be so bold, uh, I, I just want to make like just a suggestion that maybe, maybe the primary place for moving toward our, those who oppose us to moving toward our lost neighbors and friends in kindness, maybe the best place to do that is not social media. Just a thought. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, it, look, some of you are probably way better at it than, than I am, but it takes a lot of skill to go low on social media. And I think it's just the nature. Here's, it's, it's the nature because it's, it's an app where what do you do? You write something and what do you do? You walk away. 
You write it and you walk away. You don't stay and listen. You, you're, not, you're not actively engaged with a person. You're, you're, you're talking and then pausing, talking. It's, it's not, I don't, I don't think it's the best way to move toward people. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, that was free. Um, uh, so, okay, you may, you may be going, okay, what about, what about righteous anger? What about righteous anger? I understand kindness is right, but what about Jesus as he flips over tables? What about the prophets? I love this quote from Jared Wilson, who's an author and a professor. He says this, he said, Christ's anger was always righteous, but also just punctuations on his ministry. Our anger is sometimes righteous, but there are too many warnings about it in scripture to assume we're very good at it. On the other hand, we are commended to the fruit of the spirit, which nowhere mentions anger. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We wage war not against flesh and blood. And when it comes to fellow human beings, we may regard as enemies. The command is not to fight, but to love. Look, kindness is not the antithesis of boldness. There are times when, when we are speaking that we, that we have to speak up to protect those who are being harmed. We have, we have to use strong words at times. I think of Jesus when he spoke to the Pharisees. He said, he called them blind guides. He said, woe to you. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Jesus' anger, it was toward those who would claim the name of Yahweh and yet actively withhold or distort the good news of the gospel of grace from people. I love that, that, that Jerry Wilson says that these are, these are punctuations, or I've heard him say another times, these are minor notes in the ministry of Jesus. They aren't the overwhelming substance of his ministry. And he reserves such strong words, not, not for the world, not for the unbelieving crowds that he speaks to. He reserves them for the hypocrites, for the blasphemous teachers. And there are some who would say, you know, Kevin, the time for convictional kindness, that's, it's over. It's over. I've heard people say that. It's, not, it's no longer time for kindness. There's a war going on. Kindness might've worked 10 years ago, but it doesn't work anymore. We need to use different weapons. We need to fight anger with anger. And to that, I, I would just say, listen, I, I think it takes a, a lot of recency bias to come to the conclusion that human depravity has really just spun up more so lately. It really just kicked in. Now, human fallenness has always been on display. Even in the scriptures, we see horrific sin, sexual immorality, genocide, evil of all kinds, even amongst God's people. But isn't it incredible that over and over again, the description of God in the Old Testament is that God is slow to anger, but he's abounding in love. If our Lord is slow to anger, if he is if he's overwhelming, overflowing with love, then that has to shape our approach. Are we slow to anger, but are we quick to move toward people in love and in kindness. The Lord Jesus has not commissioned us to bring the pain. That's not what he's called us to. 
He's not called us to bring vengeance on our opponents, his opponents. No, he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's gonna bring it all to a close one day. Like you can relax. But he does command us that the Lord's servant is to be gentle. Even as you instruct opponents, he says. And that command doesn't change just because people are especially angry right now. Now, just as a warning, when, when we take this approach, this approach of convictional kindness, be prepared. Some will tell you, you're too kind. You need to be more of a fighter. While others will look at you and say, your commitment to truth is too harsh. You're too dogmatic. And as the world did not receive the Lord Jesus, the world will not receive us. But take heart. We're still called to go. As Jesus came to us, we're still called to go with convictional kindness. And then lastly, convictional kindness to us. Listen, a life of convictional kindness won't happen by just adding it to your to-do list. I feel like we say this a lot, but if you want, if you want to experience fruit, you don't just go build apples. No, fruit comes from steady connection to the Lord Jesus. We, we start by looking at him. There is only one who has perfectly embodied conviction and kindness, and it's Jesus Christ, the only son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. So, so can we just, I just, I'm, can we just start, end the service by, by looking at him? I, I, I hope you'll be with, on board with that. Um, we're just gonna look at what, Paul says about him to Titus in Titus 3. I love this. Paul is telling Titus, he wants Titus to look to Jesus. In verse one of chapter three, he says, remind them, the Christians, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. This sounds like what Paul told Timothy, doesn't it? He's saying, remind them to be this way to show kindness and gentleness to all people. Verse three, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Tell them to be gentle to those who are hateful. Why? Because we were them. We were them. We hated we were lost. We were enslaved in sin. And how did we change? What happened for us? He says it in verse four. But when the kindness of God, our savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Church, we can be kind. We can move toward those who are lost, toward those who bother us. We can go low to serve those who hate us. Why? Because your God and Savior, though you were his enemy, while you were opposed to him, he moved to you in kindness. Jesus lowered himself. He took on flesh. When it seems he couldn't go any lower, he took the form of a servant. But he didn't even stop there. He goes even lower. He died the death of a criminal in your place. And he was lowered all the way to the grave. Why? Why did he do all that? 
Look at verse five. He did it not because you made the first move, not because you impressed him with righteousness. No, he did it according to the kindness of his mercy. That's just how kind he is. That's the kind of love he has for you. And when Jesus arose from the dead, he raised you up with him. He made you alive. He raised you out of the pit, out of the pit of despair and discouragement and destruction. And now guess what? He sends you back into the pit. You get to go back to the pit, back to those who are still enslaved so that, so that our love, our kindness, it might just serve as a little taste, a little demonstration of the kindness and mercy that Jesus has for them. Redeemer, let's, let's go to one another. Let's go to the Christians that try our patience. Let's go to the lost. Let's go to your friend who doesn't, has never known kindness. Even to the ones who hate Jesus, who hate you. Lord, would you help us? Help us to be those who go with truth and kindness. Help us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we so desperately need your help. We are, we are frail people, but we can be such proud people. And with the overwhelming kindness that you have poured out on us for no reason within us, only because of your mercy, would that just wreck us today? Father, would it, would it bring us low? And would it give us such vision for people who disagree with us about so many different things and would it give us a vision to love them to bring the truth of the gospel to them to befriend them the way that you befriended us oh we need you for that we are we are so unable by your spirit by your spirit you saved us and you'll save many more so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.